chapter 13, verses 31 and 32. I hope you can find your place there. We'll be looking at those two verses today. We're good. Is it working? Up, down? What do we need? Nobody knows. Is it good? You think? Is it? Okay, I'm sorry. I'm, it's me. Okay, we're good. All right. All right, John chapter 13, verse 31 and 32. Now, you remember, just to very briefly set the stage again, you remember uh, we have the betrayal of Judas, and we have Judas receiving the sop, but not receiving the love. And now he, is, and he has gone out, and it was night. So now the departure has been made, and now there are only 11 you know, of course, you got Jesus, but there's 11 other than Jesus in the room. So I just say that enough to say that what is going to be said in these two verses, Judas never gets to hear. And so he misses one of the most glorious truths and revelations that could be given to us. Uh, he went out and he missed it. And so our verse starts out, when he had gone out. Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him, you say, immediately. ESV says glorify him at once. It's an instantaneous thing that is going to happen. You will note in this text that the word glory is used five times. Two verses, it is used five times. Now, in many regards, this passage is one of the most gospel-centered passages in the entire Bible. And I hope that you'll see that in a moment because this passage is going to deal specifically with the cross and so, but you have to have eyes of faith to see that. The conversation could only go so far with Judas in the room. But now Judas has departed, and now these revelations of the glory of Christ are being revealed to these 11. So, on the darkest night that we have, we have the brightest light to shine in the room at this point. Now, I have lots of questions about this passage, but I can't answer all of them this morning, so perhaps maybe we can answer one. My question is something like this, and we'll talk about glory in a moment, but if the word glory has to do with extremely high praise, why does Christ look to the most horrific death ever to be died as the height of glory. If glory is praise, glory is honor, if that's what it is, why is it that Jesus focuses that word on his crucifixion? It's not the way the paper reads when someone is supposed to get praise or glory, it doesn't read they were mauled by a mob and killed. It's not usually how glory is couched, but it is undoubtedly that way in the text. Now the Son of Man is going to be glorified. This undoubtedly is pointing to the cross event. Why do we use the word glory with the 
subject of the cross? That's my question. As I said, and maybe I say it in a different way, the world sees like championships, successful business, large number of kids or grandkids. They see these things as the glory. They won the championship and they have a parade. Here's their glory. His business succeeded. He made millions of dollars. That's his glory. Here's grandma with her 18 grandchildren. They are her glory. We put glory in those type of words. But we don't put glory in the context of the hero is slaughtered, mocked, spit upon, and nailed to a tree. It doesn't work in our minds. Nobody talks this way. So how is it that the cross can be the praise, the glory, the majesty, and the honor of the Son of God? That's my question as I look at the text. Okay, go on for quite some time, but let me uh, give you a history of the word glory in order to set the stage of where we are with this word. Words have a way of changing meaning over time, okay? If you don't know this, let me grab a word out of my brain somewhere. If you were in the 16th century and I said that you're a gay person, you would know that I meant that you're a happy person and there would be no question about it. But if I today say you're a gay person, you might be offended, right? The word changed over time. The definition changed over time. Lots of words do this. The word glory had this progression to it. It started out, the word glory meant to think or to believe something. Then it moved to the idea of to appear. Then it moved to the idea of to decide something. Then it moved to the idea to have a reputation. Then it moved to have light or radiance. And that moved to have honor and thus to have a sense of glory. So this has been the progression of the word, and it seems like the word finally settled and remained fixed upon this idea. It's a word that means repute. It means honor. It means radiance. So we can say it this way, that the word glory denotes a divine and heavenly radiance. A divine and heavenly radiance radiance. Or you could say it this way, it means the loftiness and the majesty of God. Jesus is glorified. Jesus is the loftiness and the majesty of God. Or it can even be the very being of God. Jesus is glorified. He's the very being of God. Everything that God is is manifest in the person of Christ, that's his glory. The invisible has become visible. Everything, every hint your mind or heart has about the full attributes of God, the invisible God who is spirit, have now been revealed in visible form in a person on a tree. Every attribute of God comes to manifestation, definition, and explanation on the cross. Every attribute. Everything about the gospel becomes maximized and becomes a superlative of everything that is gospel comes to its fulfillment 
in the cross. That's why it uses the word glory. Now, interesting, in John, he ties the word glory to the crucifixion almost every time he uses it. Now, I won't go through all of them, but just it will only take you a second to turn a couple of pages. But if you start back in John chapter 7, in verse 39, just take a couple of these, just to set this stage. In John 7 and 39, as he's talking about coming to him and drinking, whoever believes His heart will be full and flowing of living waters. Verse 39, he said this, now now this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. That is pointing to, he has not yet been to the cross. The cross is the point in which he will be glorified. Now, look at John chapter 12. Do a couple of these. John chapter 12. There's several in John chapter 12. Verse 16. As the triumphal entry is unfolding in John 12, 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when he was glorified, once the cross event happens, then they comprehend. Or John 12 and verse 23. John 12, 23. Some, some Greeks come and seek Jesus. They say, sir, we want to see Jesus. Verse 23, Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And I told you in that text, we're right within a 24-hour window here of Jesus being nailed to a tree. So the word glory is used again. And then in chapter 12, verse 28, you will see your heading probably on your Bible says the Son of Man must be lifted up. It says obviously a crucifixion scene. And in verse 28, Father, glorify your name. A voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. That, that again is going to be on the cross. All that I'm setting before you here, and you can also see it in John 17, 1 through 5. All that I'm setting before you is, is that John takes the word glory and ties it to the crucifixion scene throughout the gospel to show that this is the height, this is the superlative, this is high as you can go on the spectrum to display the glory of God. That's what I'm laying out before you. Now, Judas is gone. He's forever gone. And I'm telling you, that here's the sad tragedy, not only that he goes to hell, but Judas misses the glory of the Son of Man. He misses it. Not only does he miss it, he also misses the glory of God, and ultimately, he misses heaven. That's a tragedy. He's gone out, and it's night, and all of the understanding of glory is devoid in his mind, bankrupt, and he goes off into a Christless eternity, not knowing the glory of God. Now, I won't bore you with Greek grammar and the strangeness of the words, but the question here is, why does he use these words as we read them? They seem to be in a past tense. It says, the Son of Man glorified 
God is glorified, if God is glorified. All three of those seem to be a past tense action of something that has already taken place. But everybody in the room knows at this point in history, Jesus has not been crucified. How do you talk about a past tense event about something that's going to happen in the future? What is the writer John trying to show us? The grammar here is this. It describes an event that is not yet past as though it was already accomplished. The author sometimes uses this to show that the future event is an absolute certainty. This is not the cross at this point is not a questionable thing. Like he might die on the cross, he could possibly be crucified. Here is the Spirit of God moving through the Apostle of God to say, before the world was created, God determined to hand over His Son to be crucified, and it's going to happen. It's as much as writing past tense in Isaiah 53, 750 years before Christ, to say, look, you can guarantee this is absolutely going to happen. Christ is going to the cross to be a substitute for sinners. He's going to be glorified. God is going to be glorified. And all of this is going to culminate together in the cross event. Certainty from your Bible. You read certainty like this, then when you read texts that say, surely he's coming again, you say yes and amen. You, you start reading those future promises like they're already obtained realities. Because that's the way it has worked throughout biblical history. Now, I'm not calling anybody in the room Judas. It's not the intention. But I do want to make this observation just by the way of application. And it is true, although it doesn't necessarily make you a Judas. But at least hear it in the heart that it is given. Be aware that when you, individually, everybody in the room, when you're not around the preaching of the Word of God, you don't hear it. When you're not present for communion, you don't eat. And you don't drink. And on our last communion, it means also that you didn't have hands laid on you and prayed over you, every one. And when you're not praying with the church, then we're not getting the benefit of your prayers as we intercede for those who needed to be interceded for. When you're absent, you can miss out on some of the richest glories of God. Judas missed them. Now, he missed it unto eternity. I'm not saying that's true of you, but I am saying if you're absent, you will not receive and then I would also make this other point of application. The use of the word glory in the Gospel of John is often tied to the cross event. I think by way of implication, it must teach us something. The way that I could give God the most glory is by dying to myself. In order that he would receive all the glory that is due unto him. All right, now, <clears throat> talk to you about the placement of the word glory. 
It is interesting to me here, and it's interesting to me because of the following. As I told you about glory being praise, being honor, radiance, this idea of getting all the recognition one deserves, I do find it odd that this word is used for the cross, but it doesn't seem to be present in some other text that I think that it ought to be. You know, if you read through Matthew's gospel, one of the first grand scenes you will come to is the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this voice came from heaven, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. This is a really remarkable event. Amen? I mean, think somewhere in that passage there would be the word glory, but it's not there. We think there's another picture in Matthew. Matthew chapter 17. He called it the transfiguration. And Jesus is lifted up and exalted. And there's Moses and there's Elijah and there's this cloud. And there's all this beauty and majesty. And all this is overwhelming in this situation. But nowhere in Matthew 17 do you find the word glory. I'm not saying it's not there in the sense that he's not, there's not some glory. I'm just saying it's not the word is not in the text. Or here's one, get to the end of Matthew, chapter 28, and we have something called the resurrection. And we have this resurrection scene, and Christ appearing, and you have the great commission, and all this. But nowhere in Matthew 28 is this word glory. And I'm like, it's just interesting to me, because when it comes to talking about the cross, we get glory five times in two verses. In order to illustrate and maximize that the cross is the number one central priority event of all of history. That's why everywhere you go to this day, you have complete and utter pagans who are still wearing crosses around their neck. And you've got crosses all up and down the side of the road where people have died. And you've got crosses on billboards, you've got crosses on signs, crosses everywhere. I'm not a Billy Graham fan, but in, in the sense of like he's my hero or something. But man, when he preached on the cross one time, it just grabbed a hold of me. All these people holding these crosses, but they don't have Christ. But the, the cross is a global thing. Go through Mexico, go through Honduras, go to Germany, go to anywhere you want to go. You'll find a cross. Go to this funeral, go to that funeral, go here, go there. Crosses everywhere. Why? Even though they don't know, even though they don't get it, I'm telling you, it is the central theme of all world history. You cannot escape the cross. You can't even go to the schoolhouse and escape the cross because you've got to write your date on your paper and the date is set on B.C. and A.D., before the cross and after death. That's how the dating system is set. Everybody knows that time hangs on the crucifixion. Everything is set by that. If we placed the word glory in the context of his baptism, it wouldn't boggle our brains. If we placed it at the transfiguration, it wouldn't give us much trouble. If we placed it at the resurrection, it wouldn't bother us all that much. But to place this word glory to the word cross, it does seem odd. It does seem odd. Nobody talks this way. We have the desertion of one of the apostles. We have a prophecy about death. We have a future event of a cross. And we know that everyone who hangs up on a tree has been damned by God. Glory. It does seem odd, does it not? 
How can a bloody, ravaged, dying Savior be the maximum display of the praise and honor that is due unto God? How can a bloody, ravaged, dying Savior be the maximum display of the praise and honor that is due unto God? Let's do it this way. What would the caption on the paper, Facebook, whatever you use these days, whatever, what would be the caption? What would read if a modern hero of our day is spit upon, mocked, tied to a tree, and beaten to death by a group of evil thugs? What does the caption say? He was glorified. It doesn't say that. There's no way it says that. It says something totally different than that. Oh, what a tragedy. Oh, what a sadness. Oh, how evil the world is. Oh, everything went bad. Oh, his karma ran out of his cup. They say something like that. But nobody writes a headline, here lies the hero. What glory is due to him for getting beat up? Nobody talks this way. Why does John emphatically put the glory of Christ at the cross event? It will take eyes of faith to see what is here. Now, as I alluded to earlier, the cross is the manifestation of the gospel. That's what's going on in this cross event. Think about some words. Do these do anything? Do these, as we say in East Texas, does this wet your whistle? Redemption, regeneration, justification, sanctification, glorification, reconciliation, adoption. Do those words have any meaning to you? Do they help your heart to know that you've been adopted into the family of God? That you and God have been reconciled and you now have peace? Are these not great words uh, that feed our souls? None of those words are possible without a cross. None of those words come to reality unless someone dies in your place. It's important to know that. So let's get a good, robust theology of glory from this event. Now, as we move into a theology of glory, here's my premise from these two verses, and I hope this will help us. The cross is the place that all of God's attributes are manifested and revealed. Everything you want to discover about the nature and being of God is magnified in this event. Everything you know about God is realized in what happens on Calvary's tree. Without the cross, all attributes are lost. God is forgiving, not if there's not a cross. God is merciful, not if there's not a cross. God's a God of grace, not if there's not a cross. All of these things get lost unless there's a revelation of them on Calvary's tree. That's why Christians love the cross, because it has meaning and significance There's something that really happened in time and history in order to redeem me, in order to purchase me, in order to forgive me. There's an event that happened in time and history in which my sins were forgiven. 
in which I was adopted, in which I was reconciled. Something real happened, and it was so real that it impacted me in such a way that my very nature was changed. I got a new heart, and I got a new spirit, and I've never been the same because the old has passed away, and all has become new because of this cross event. Cross is significant to Christendom. You don't have a cross, you have no Christianity. Attributes of God, the attributes of being. God is spirit. The cross event is a spiritual event. It ministers to the soul. We talk about the cross, there's something that happens inside of a person. Look, you want to stand up out in the public realm and say, Weenie the Pooh is cute, nobody cares. You want to say Santa Claus rides in a sleigh, whoop-de-doo. The world is not much moved by that. You stand in the public market, as Cody did yesterday and as I did yesterday in two different locations, you stand in the public market and you say that God has sent forth his son to be a substitute to die on the cross and to be resurrected on the third day and you must repent and believe, now you've got the world's attention. Because it's spiritual, it affects the conscience. And all of a sudden, some are angry, some are silenced, some Christians are smiling, because when they hear the cross, it's doing something internally to them. It's a spiritual event because God is spirit. And when God speaks through the gospel of his cross, it affects the conscience. No matter what comes out of the mouth, positive, negative, or neutral, the cross affects the heart. It's a spiritual event. The cross always speaks to the heart. That's why I love to preach the cross, because it's not in any remote way about me. I didn't substitute for anybody. I didn't die for anybody, and I don't have any righteousness to give. And I preach about the cross. It's all about someone else who did something for me and to me because I wasn't able to do anything for me. So the cross tells me that. I come with nothing in my hands do I bring. That's what the hymn says. Simply to the cross do I cling. All my hope is found there. And without Christ, there's not a chance I'm going to make it to heaven. There are mental attributes of God on the cross. What are some of the mental attributes of God? Omniscience. You say, how in the world is the cross about omniscience? Because before the foundation of the world, Acts says the cross is the determined plan of God. So when you see Christ on the cross, just know that before the world was created, God knew this day would come forth. He knew it so well that he'd have somebody like the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, say something like this. In the fullness of time... God sent forth his son to be born of a woman, to redeem those who are under the law. Oh, God not only knew and planned, he brought it to be on the cross. So when I see the cross, I go, you know what? God knows everything. Wisdom. (laughs) The mental attribute of wisdom. The cross was the wisest way to bring about the redemption of man. Now, I got this from Augustine. How do you know the cross is the wisest way to bring about redemption? Because it's the way God did it. 
He's an infinitely wise God. Everything he does is the wisest way to do something. So if God is the one, and he is, who planned the cross, it's the wisest way of redemption. Here's what knuckleheads say. Well, that's not the way I would do it. Right, because you're not God. Well, I would have, yeah, you probably would have, but it wouldn't have worked. This is the way God did it because he's infinitely wise. He planned the redemption of humanity before humanity was born because he knew how to redeem. It's wise. And the truthfulness of the cross, think about the mental attribute of truthfulness. In a world of liars, in a world of liars, everything that God said would come to be about redemption was fulfilled perfectly in Christ. Every prophecy of the Old Testament comes to fruition in Christ. What about moral attributes? Of the cross. Christ is glorified on the cross. What moral attributes are going on here? There's a lot of them. I won't do them all, but I will do some of them. What about the moral attribute of goodness? Goodness. Right? What does Titus say? When the goodness and the loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. He saved us, not by works of our righteousness, but by the washing of regeneration, right? All the goodness, all the goodness of God flowed forth on Calvary's tree. God showed up. God was manifest. Isn't it good to know that God sought you out? That God came to you? That you weren't looking for Him, He was looking for you. And He set His goodness upon you and showed you the beauty of His Son that you might be redeemed. What goodness in God? Do you understand that God doesn't need you? That God didn't gain because of you? That God was God a billion years before you ever came into being? He'll be in existence a billion years after you're gone? But this God who needs nothing outside of himself was so good that he came down to the bottom of the barrel and picked you. I hope you never get over that. To think that God would be so good to us. Now we could do a whole sermon. I don't have time this morning on this attribute. How about the love of God and the cross? What an attribute. The cross stands as the greatest love ever known. What does first, not John 3.16. 1 John 3.16 say, By this we know love. That he laid down his life for us. I learned that at Calvary. I learned that. I have a Savior that substituted and laid down his life, took the punishment that I deserve on himself, and God treated Jesus as if he was me. All my lies, all my pride, all my selfishness, all my idolatry, all my thieving, all my lustful thoughts, all of them are put on Christ, and Christ absorbs the wrath of God in my place that I could go free. If that's not love, I don't know anything that is. It's at the cross we find forgiveness. 
Is it not that we see there the cross removes our sins? It causes the Apostle Paul to write something like this. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord does not count his sin. Blessed. Because of Calvary, I am blessed that my sins are not being tallied by heaven. Who's going to bring a charge against God's elect anyways? Is it not he who justifies? No one can bring a charge against God's elect because he has washed them with his blood clean. And he has clothed them with his righteousness. What about mercy? The cross pacifieth the wrath that we deserved you glance in the book of Romans real quickly. I can't seem to quote it from the top of my head, but Romans 9 may be problematic for some, just the teachings of Romans 9, but at least hear the text about mercy. Romans 9, 15. For he says to Moses, it's God's prerogative. He says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not depend on the human will or on exertion, or running. It depends on God who has mercy. Verse 18, so then, he who has, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Verse 23, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. God's mercy is demonstrated on the cross. We deserved a beating and we got none. How about grace? How about grace on the cross? What is, we've been taught all of our life that grace is being given something that you didn't deserve. For by grace are you saved through faith. It's not a work of yourselves lest you might boast. It's all grace. God gave God freely gave. And so I said yesterday, I stood up, I said, all the heavens declare the glory of God. There's not a place where their voice is not heard. Their measuring line goes out to the end of the world declaring the glory of God. All of God's glory being declared as a gift of grace. He gives us his son that whoever would believe could have everlasting life. What grace? You didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. You didn't procure God's necessity to give you something. God simply moved out of who he is to give you something you don't deserve. I learned that on Calvary. Learned that looking at the cross. What about holiness? There's a blessed verse on this thought. The cross satisfies justice and grants grace At the same time, without diminishing justice and without distorting grace. Remember in Proverbs chapter 17, verse 15. Proverbs 17 and 15 is a great and wonderful text to preach. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. So how in the world... Can we get wicked people justified? And how in the world can a righteous man be condemned? How can God pull this off? The only way possible is to have a perfect substitute. Justice is upheld because sin is punished. 
Righteousness is upheld because it is given to another. It's the great exchange. Our sin to him, his righteousness to us. And God's justice and mercy are perfectly upheld at the same time. Well, there's another great verse about peace. There's a lot of verses about peace. Therefore, we have peace with God. But also one in Psalm 85.10. In Psalm 85.10, the psalmist says, Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. This is a strange phrase, is it not? The perfect righteousness of God and the perfect peace of God have met together in this embracing kiss. Where? On Calvary. The righteousness of God is there on Calvary. The peace of God there is on Calvary. They come to unity there. Everyone in Christ experiences righteousness and peace with God. The cross satisfies every demand that the law has. I think no further than Romans 3 and verse 26 about the cross. It would say this. The cross was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in him. Faith in Jesus. Righteousness. Oh, let's do two more. Because Oprah Winfrey hated the word jealousy and couldn't conceive of a jealous God way back in the day, maybe in the 80s, Uh, But the Bible still remains the same. God is a jealous God. And he demands that all glory be given to him. Here is a verse in John 13, 31 and 32 saying that all glory is wrapped up in a cross event. To take that glory and give it to someone else is the height of idolatry. For God to allow glory and praise to be given to something else or to someone else is to say that they are equal or worthy of worship. And God forbids the worship of anyone except himself. You say, well, that's really selfish. Well, maybe it is, but he's God. He has the right to do whatever he wants to do. Our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. But not only that, but it's your greatest good. What kind of God would it be? Like every blessing that is known in all of eternity is in God. And he says, well, it's okay if you want to go a different way. That would be for your downfall. To have all of your attention on God is for your benefit, for your soul, for your good, for your prosperity. Lastly, it's not last, but last for this morning. Wrath, the attribute of wrath, the moral attribute of wrath. The cross absorbs it all for the elect of God. Y'all know I love the word propitiation. I'm angry when translations take that word out and use something else. Because we know that propitiation means something. Propitiation means that God has wrath, that wrath is given or displayed, and somebody receives that wrath. It is on the cross that I find that Jesus has drank the entire cup and not one drop is left every wrath an amount of wrath that is due to my sin Christ absorbed look bounty got nothing on Jesus right bounty can only absorb so much 
Bounty can't absorb the wrath of God. Only Christ could do so. And he absorbed every ounce of wrath. You understand the wrath that would be displayed upon you for eternity in hell has all been drank up by Christ? And that now there's no wrath that remains for you? You understand the freedom and the joy to know that wrath has been abated and I am free? I can worship and I can live with hope and I can live in confidence because I'm going home to a God who has no wrath for me. Amen. All these other false religions, they're all trying to appease Buddha, appease Muhammad. They're trying to be happy with their God and Buddha. They're trying to make sure that he's not angry. I don't have to do that because he has no anger for his church. It's no anger for his children. Christ has absorbed all of his wrath, and there's none that remains for his children. You can come to the throne of God boldly and have communion with your Father. No fear, no guilt. You don't have to hide your head. You can go right in to the Holy of Holies where people fear to trod lest they die, And you can walk directly into the Holy of Holies because Jesus has absorbed all of the wrath that you could go free. This is the theology of glory. There's also attributes of purpose in the cross. And that is this. I'll give you three. The purposes, the will of God, freedom, and omnipotence. Let me give you those three just very briefly. The cross is the will of God revealed. It's his will. You see that in Isaiah 53.10. This is his will that one would go through this in order to redeem. It's his will. Secondly, freedom. The purpose of the cross, think about it. The purpose of the cross was to set men free. You understand from Romans 6 that you're a slave to unrighteousness. You're a slave to the devil. You're a slave to sin. See, people without Christ, all they can do is sin. All they can do is rebel because they are slaves to a cruel taskmaster. That's all they can do. But the purpose of the cross was to set men free. You see Moses go down to Egypt, and you see him bring them out. They're set free from Pharaoh. They don't have to make bricks anymore. They don't have to work seven days a week anymore. They're redeemed out. That's a picture. On the cross, it's fulfilled. Jesus came down to Egypt. Set us free. I don't have to listen to the devil no more. I don't have to do what he says no more. There's one who lives in me that's greater than he that lives in the world. Omnipotence. The cross is the power of God. You see that in Romans 1.16. It takes an awfully great power to accomplish the purpose of making dead men live. You go try it sometime. Go down to Hazel Land there and see if you can pull it off. See if you can come out of there with anybody alive. But here's omnipotence on the cross. Spiritually depraved dead men are brought to life. There's some summary attributes we could mention. Perfection. The cross perfectly redeems. 
There's no failure in the cross, power, or its ability to redeem. Blessedness, the cross is the greatest blessing that will ever be known to man. And then I have to show you the beauty of the cross, just in two verses. So I want you to look at these two. So if you have your Bibles, you haven't fallen asleep yet, Isaiah 53, 2. Two verses. I want you to see this beauty. Sometimes we don't connect it this way. Back up just a, just a little bit in Isaiah. But in Isaiah 52, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Verse 14, As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Now look at Isaiah 53, 2. He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Now with that thought in mind, look at Psalm 27, 4. And this is what I mean to have the eyes of faith. Psalm 27, verse 4. And I would wonder if this could be your prayer today. The psalmist says, this is David's psalm. One thing I've asked of the Lord, that will I seek after. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Why? I insert the word why. And David's answer, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Oh, that the Christian church would learn to gather in a sanctuary. You know, it was just a piece of wood back here. And it was just a cross emblem. But in a sense that we would gather to gaze upon this beauty where every attribute of God has been manifested for the redemption of His people. Every attribute we've been through, and all the attributes that exist, I can bring all of them out, maximized in the cross. And so when the cross here that John speaks about, and he says, now will the Son of Man be glorified, and God will be glorified in Him, and if God is glorified in Him, He will glorify Himself in Him, I look at that and say, yes, 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 amen, amen, amen. Amen. Everything I need for my soul to know about God, about eternity, is found in substitution on Calvary's tree, where the Prince of God laid down his life willingly and absorbed God's wrath in my place and gave me his righteousness that I might go free. Love the cross. And I encourage you this morning that you would consider turning from yourself and looking unto the beauty of of Christ. And Christian, don't presume upon God's kindness and don't take it for granted. Let me warn you, if you're at the place in your life that the cross has become common, you need to repent. If you take these things for granted like it's just what we do on Sunday, you are robbing yourself of much of what God wants to show you. Don't be like Judas and leave the room. Stay and seek Him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. 
Uh, Brother Jeff's going to lead us in a song that is a glorious old hymn written by Isaac Watts. You may know another writer by the name of Fanny Crosby wrote many, many a hymn. Isaac Watts wrote a song called At the Cross, At the Cross. Yes, think about that song. And one day, there was a lady by the name of Fanny Crosby, 31 years of age. She was at a revival service at John Street Methodist Church in New York. After prayer was offered, she recalled, they began to sing the grand old consecration hymn, Alas, and did my Savior bleed. And when they reached the third line of the fifth stanza, which says, Here, Lord, I give myself away. Here, Lord, I give myself away. My very, she says, my very soul was flooded with celestial light. Do you not know that Fanny Crosby come to conversion because she was singing at the cross by Isaac Watts? How fitting that a hymn writer would bring the conversion of another hymn writer that would give the gift of so many songs to the church that we would relish in. But don't miss it. Perhaps today, you would give yourself away. It's the least you could do. Give yourself to Christ.